lots of crap posted out there. Anyway, some of the things I like to make. really want to talk about welding. I mentioned that before. I've been thinking about um, Let's be honest, that's what we're here to do. Oh, 
After all that talk about being here, you know, I probably got scared. Um, and I was trying to get a good grip on the outside. And I probably could have drained the pan after flipping. And so I waited a little long to get that grip. And I should have been more just cheering and flipping. Um, but it's still a really good that was really good too. Got the old dog in the back of the car. My 130 pound hamburger. Turns out he also likes cheese. He doesn't really care. I just think it's really good. Really spicy. Um, if they give him too much spice, it's dangerous. Thing is grinding just like sandpaper is 
wood to get in so many saws, you wouldn't want to put your cutty in the wood. Sand it if you want to sand it, and then cutting it in the saw. You don't do a lot of cutting with saw, but except you do have glass saws, and then that's also called cutting. So, take that. Over that. Um, so, the vertical wheel is a wheel that is mounted with the axle horizontally, and the wheel is straight up down like the car. The car has a vertical wheel, but these are smaller than car wheels. Um, these are the wheel we're going to cut with. Let's say it's four inches, four inch, four inch vertical wheel mounted on an axle or the spindle of that, the center that goes, the center rod that goes down the middle of that wheel, um, somewhere in the, somewhere in the one inch size, so we're going to call it a one inch harbor size for that center of that wheel, and that actual spindle harbor, um, the holds that wheel in one inch, and it's going to be part of what you want get that wheel a little distance from the You're going to have this shaft, axle shaft, sticking out of your motor's, you know, maybe 12 or 18. Um, you've got a little distance so that you can take the work up to the wheel and you've got space there to work it. Uh, because if it was like, uh, you know, you're, you've got this bench grinder thing, you want to be able to kind of work around it. You've got a weird glass shape that you can move around it. So, um, work it better. And you can also get into larger wheels. So if you could have a 16 or 20 inch wheel. These days, we mainly buy our wheels like with a preset size, with a preset arbor size, and they're either uh, the kind of chromium embedded with diamonds, or it's a polymer embedded with a little diamond grit, or it is what is called a sinter. Sinter is S S I N T E R. Sinter wheel that um, is made of a matrix of bronze granite uh, that is fire. So it's kind of made as like, from what I understand, made like a little cake. And then it's fired much like ceramic is fired. Uh, which is similar to a precious metal clay. It's essentially a precious metal clay technique. Rather than pouring the hot metal into a shape and then machining it, which is often how things are made with bronze. Um, because it has a matrix of diamonds within it, I guess I suppose, I assume, uh, that the reason it's made this way is that you get the right amount of diamonds within that wheel, embedded within that wheel. Uh, you would want to make it out of a dry, 
take the powder and pack it in, and then you fire it, and diamonds are going to ship in a liquid state. You never actually get it into liquid state. So this is a really interesting space where the using the precious metal clay and where it kind of merges in between glass and metal, um, where you can take this clay body matrix and it's a little bit of silica, but it's also a filler, and then it's holding all the metal kind of into place, and the flux is available for the metal to become metalified when you get it hot. And so the whole thing fires and turns into that metal. Like it's not like it's a, it's a clay matrix only metal. Like really that metal gets flushed, it becomes that metal. But it doesn't get so hot that it goes liquid. So you need to put it in a mold and make, make it and then fire it. And precious metal clay is a is kind of a newer fangled um, crafting world of craft is often with silver. You have precious metal clay and silver base and it's like you work it like a clay and then you fire it and it becomes the silver. It becomes the silver component that makes you work like silver. Grind it, polish it, solder it, and weld it like silver. And um, that's revolutionized craft silver jewelry world. It's totally changed the way that um, a lot of people are able to access silver jewelry and such. And so my theory is that this stuff has been developed in, you know, like by aerospace engineers to make certain things and then as they kind of develop these techniques then they kind of trickle down. Um, a lot of the things that we did originally started on fishing um, because that's where you have really high heat type parameters that keep things to like exist in a certain extraction way. Um, and so all sorts of new fangled uh, processing material um, out of the actual. Um, I don't know the origin of such Man, I got some theories. Uh, so, this injured deal is made of a bronze and silica matrix that contains little tiny diamonds. The diamonds are already preset in their size and they're cutting in a certain way. You can get that, you can get it in a hundred grit or two hundred grit, which is really just has to do with the like surface that it's going to leave. So it has to do with the aggressiveness of its cut, but it really has to do with like what it leaves behind. Like how rough is the glass as cut? How soft is it and how rough is it? Uh, so in a traditional Batudo or Chico test, and now these words are, um, from what I understand, a Batudo is reference hammered look, and a chizo is cut battered, and a chizo is a division of sorts. Um, and so you would make the batudo with a round wheel and a chizo with a 
that round and each shape is first the profile of the wheel. It's vertically mounted and you're looking over the top of it, looking down at the wheel. And you're looking at the outside like where we see the tread on the car. Outside shape, the weight weight of that wheel. Um, the pseudo wheel is going to be round, and the pseudo wheel is going to be a, it's going to come to a point. So it's going to be a V shape, but the center of it is going to be more pointy. The outside will be smaller. The outside radius of the wheel will be smaller, and the center will be a V. There are many kinds of wheels, and it used to be in the olden days that you would use a and now we have all these newfangled equipment and ways and kind of dial it down to like people want either a round wheel, they want a wheel. That's what manufacturers produce. Um, but it used to be that as a shop, you might actually produce the wheels that you want out of a certain type of stone. You would move to harvesting stone, so you get from a stone harvester, of course. And then you would need to cut this stone down and dress it into a certain shape. You might dress it into a round wheel or you also might dress it into a certain, certain type of round wheel, whether a wider radius, a shorter radius, a deeper round, a smaller round, depending on what you might desire for the look. Um, you might also have a wheel, but you might have a wheel that has many so it can cut multiple pieces at once. That's where it gets really tricky. There's not too many of those around. If you, you can buy a manufactured ginger wheel that has many little cuts on it. It's like maybe 10 of them, little tiny grooves. Um, Silver and you need the hammer marks, you 
could make this hammered life look on a metal system. That's what the Bushido name is referencing. Um, and this is generally a common Bushido technique to create a honeycomb-like pattern. So laying out those little circles in such a way that they create little tiny six-sided or six-sided little shapes. So, get in the weeds here, y'all. Uh, if we're laying out this honeycomb pattern on the surface of the glass, we're just doing it by touching the wheel to the glass. We're not moving the glass when it is on the wheel. It is removed. Don't slide the wheel. Okay, it's piezo cut. You can do this same technique where you just touch it, go in, and remove, and you make a small line. And then you make a pattern of lines together, and then you can go up and line up the line, next line, in between those lines, and create another set of lines. Um, you can also, more common with these is to make a little bit longer of a line. And when you start cutting, when you Place the glass onto the table and start sliding the glass. The wheel is going to be turning the face of the wheel that you're working on. It's going to be turning towards the ground. You can either go up and down on it, but generally pushing into the wheel, going up and bringing the glass up while the wheel is cutting down. It's going to be a little easier. You're going to do the resistance of the wheel. Uh, it's like when you're on get a router, it's less likely to jump, and it's less likely to go in But there's times when you're definitely going to want to go in the other way. And, uh, depending on your stance and weight of the glass, it might be easier going the other way also. Uh, none of this is all very hard. It's very hard. Um, generally, the, the new way that things the surface cutting is done is by looking over the top of it. Look, your eyes are going between the glass and looking down into this watery mess where the glass reveals the glass. Because oftentimes, the Pseudo technique. Most likely are done on colored glass, glass that has pattern or color in it. It's not through the glass. The old fashioned way of crystal cutting, where you would be doing this on clear glass, was more commonly done looking through the glass. So you would look through the glass and bring the wheel and you do the cut. So actually, the glass almost acted like it's in a safety glass. You would see the wheel cutting into the glass by looking through the glass, and then you follow lines that were set on the glass. Like that. The old world of crystal cutting, more commonly, would have you move the glass on the wheel, cutting a pattern in a linear fashion. So you would drawing the wheel, drawing the glass across the wheel, and arcing. 
and that is more easily done looking through the glass. It's easier to look through the glass and see where you're going than looking over the glass. Between the glass and the wheel, where it's really the water, because the wheel is going to be wet, and it's going to be hard to see where you are. Really hard to see. Really. Hard to see. Um, and so, but because of the world of glass art and where people want things and the surface technique and the looks that people are going for, generally one of the more popular ways that people like to see these events of Budapest are on the surface of colored glass on a very complex vessel. You cannot look through and it's got all this pattern or color on it. So you just have to put it on the surface in order to see the wheel. You have to look over the wheel. People don't like those changes. People don't want your grandma to it. You know what I mean? I do, but a lot of people don't want your grandma to it. And you know, I don't have any money, so I'm not driving the market. Um, what is driving the market is people want these big, fancy food food vessels with all sorts of color and lines, pattern on them, which is the pseudo vessel. The old fashioned way of making crystal was do these cuts and then polish it. You can also then follow with another wheel with a little higher grip to polish it. Or you might acid etch it and or fire polish it. Polish it. Use the heat of a furnace to finish that polish. Because if you cut it at 220, you've got this rich surface that's probably akin to like the mass surface of the uh, So at 220 is going to make it cut and make it go look, go look nice, it's going to be fairly smooth, like paper, but it's not glossy, it's not glossy. And crystal cutting, generally, you're going to want to look with, want it to be looking really polished. Sometimes, you're going to be skipping wheels and just get right polished, sometimes with an after polish, it's going to lose a little texture, but it's going to make it look glossy. There's different techniques of fire polish to make it look pretty good or soften it up a bit and make it look to get all that. What you're really doing with that crystal is you're just playing with the refractive index of the glass. You're making these places where the prism of the glass will send out little rainbows. And if you're using a lead based crystal, the refractive index is way higher and those rainbows are going to be wider. Because lead is going to make the glass way denser, and so these rainbows are going to be really wide. You're going to have a lot of color coming off of the clear glass. You know, split your little Pink Floyd rainbow and make it way wider. And so, so like I said, people don't want that. They don't want that no more. So they're making so generally what you're going to see is a mass surface, a single cut wheel. And the Pachuto and Enchizo. In the pattern done on the surface of something that's colored, it's way harder to go back in and repolish it. So generally, the way that the large vessels are being made by there's a number of American glass artists and Italian glass artists that are using this technique, and the style is to cut it at 220 and then polish it with using the cream. It's not really polishing, you just rub the ingredients, use some lithium grease on a horsehair wheel, and you polish that. Well, it's not necessarily polishing, you just rub the grease in, 
or he might use a spray on type of cluster, spray on type of block, seal it in, and make it look pretty good. Soften it up, you know, bring it into that kind of pink quality look. Almost like foggy but smooth, but past the paper into the so that might be the way that you would treat those specific things. Um, in order to prepare a surface, because you're going to do this on a large object, and you've got a lot of patterns to lay out, and you have a not perfect
repair that for a bit. Um, it's just like busting that whole thing at 1520. And at this point, you can also deal with any systems that you have on your server. It's your glass pick up stuff when you're fixing it because you can just touch it on a door or take it on a stone shelf too hot because I have a little flat spot and have tool marks. This is a place that you, just like the pros, clean that all up. All now, say you wanted to lay out a pattern that has some Inchigo, some Batuto, and some Gloss. You wanted to be a strip of Gloss in between your Batuto and your Inchigo. You wanted to strike the other Batuto and then strike the Inchigo. And then strike the Gloss. And you also have stuff like the Bros. You have weird stuff on your surface. This 220 moment where you're going to hit the whole thing with 220 where you can get rid of all those issues. And now, uh, the whole thing is 220. And then you can polish the strip. Then you lay out where you want the strip of polish to be. Now you're going to polish that. You actually won't leave any surface that's possible. Your surfaces will actually be all closed. Uh, this might be mind-blowing to a glassman. It might not be mind-blowing to you know, glass. It might be actually really easy. Um, but it's been glass really second to you. Pattern laid out. Pseudo, Chico, clear. So I wonder, wow, how did they get such a nice hot plate? Because they were keeping on Left your whole surface to 220. Okay? Whole thing to 220. Now you figure out what you want gloss to be. Okay? Now you're going to mark that out and tape over what you don't want to gloss. Cover that in tape, duct tape, or electric tape, gorilla tape. Make sure it's dry. Put some tape on right there. You lay out. Now that it's 220, you lay out with a sharpie really easy where you want your pattern. You lay out your pattern. Get your pattern laid out. Now tape over what you want to do with that. And then you're going to polish all your areas that are not going to surface. And you can see we polish that using that angle grinder, the Velcro pad angle grinder, taking yourself to the 5, 7, 8, 40 yards. You want to get that polished. Take it to the Chico again. Smooth out that glass and bring it to a polish again. If you've got a large belt wheel, holding a large object against the wheel, slowly smoothing that out and removing that 220 and turn it into a 320, to a 450, to a 600, to an 800, to a three polish, finally to a polish that's good at the outside of the fence. Uh, and that should also take an 8 hours. So now you have your glossy part laid out, and that's all repaired and reset. And then you have your strips of 220 all set out, just how you want them. Now you can remove the tape from the 220, and now you're going to tape up your glossy part, the parts that you are done polishing and that are in finish mode. Now you can tape those up. And prepare to turn 20. 
And the reason that you cut is you sanded down all of the surface of the glass. The huge one is it goes behind the studio, right? It's because when you lay out that honeycomb pattern or the little incision cut, when you lay those out on your surface, if you miss a little spot, your honeycomb pattern isn't 100% perfect, and there's a little gap in it. The gap isn't wrong. The gap isn't The gap is foggy also. The same you want as the needle that you're going to use. And so that's another important kind of trick that you'll use to prepare your surface, because if you were trying to honeycomb pattern, the perfect judo so that every little gap is covered, you'd also be working way harder and have to look way closer and you miss that. You wouldn't get it. You might have to go back in there and there'll go a glossy spot. But you have to deal with that glossy spot. And it's really tricky laying out your pattern, that honeycomb pattern, going in and touching each of those moments with the wheel. It's even trickier, but not impossible to come back into that pattern and retouch in that exact same spot. You get pretty close. And if you know what you're doing and what you're looking for and feeling for, you can get really close and you can budge it. But to actually come back into the casino with that same wheel on that same spot is really, really tricky. And it's going to be easier to lay out your pattern and come in and just touch those spots. Because part of what you're doing is you're, you're looking at the water, you're looking at, you're feeling the weight of the glass, and you're moving in a pattern motion, but you don't necessarily know exactly where you're touching on the glass. You might be within a, you know, a sixteenth of an inch, but it's hard to see when you're right in there exactly where you are. And so this technique of laying out everything with the D20 first is going to save you a little bit of headache as you get further along in the pattern, lay that nice pattern out. And then after years of that, you'll actually be good enough where you don't even need to do But you know that this one is good because it saves you a little bit of time. And part of what you're doing in this world is saving yourself time. It's uh, important to prepare yourself for many thousands of hours on air. Really like sit well on the surface and make it way easier. 
your your glass is a little trickier to see because usually a silver paint pen is great. But the silver paint pens, like they do wash off and they are harder to maintain the pen, like the pen itself, like the silver pens just don't last that long. White pens will last a little longer. Um, you could use a white paint pen to lay out your pattern, but you can't just have one white pen. They don't last. Uh, so, none of them will last. If you start beating, all that stuff will just get used up because you get it wet or you're rubbing it on glass that kind of ultimately has to be lined away a little bit back with it. So, <laughs> now, lay out our pattern know that you want to do this honeycomb pattern. So what you might want to do, you might want to lay out like a grid work of lines that is going to give you the space of where you're going to put those honeycomb dots. So you can lay out the lines on the surface, horizontal and vertical, so that you know where your pattern can go, you know where each dot goes, you know how much you're going to how large those dots are. The size of the dots are going to be determined somewhat by the wheel, but also determined by how long you spend on the wheel. So is it one second, two seconds, it's pushing a little bit, is it four seconds with a lot of pressure, is it one second really fast? Are you doing a tight little pattern? Are you doing bigger dots that you're spacing out more? Um, and so that is something that you can then lay out with the marker of where those dots go. This is when you can start to predict how you're going to reduce, like say your pattern has to kind of come to a point. Like how do you reduce it down? How do you make that fit into um, a sloping shape that's like a, you know, the shape of a knife that's two inches wide at the base and it pulls up to a point over 10 inches. Like how does it fit in on pattern there to make it look good when it's not actually the reduction using as the size that the honeycomb pattern wants her to make it look from a perfect pyramid, but you're going to start doing that. So how do you get that to work? You're going to be you're going to start to lay that out with your marker um, when you're putting in the mark where each of those cuts fit them. This is how the shape of you're still kind of predicting because there's a little bit of like when you're in there, like actually laying it out, and it's always going to be room for error because you can always like pitch it a little bit, jump a little bit, scratch a little bit, and you're going to want to be able to adjust within that and not have to go back to the drawing board. If you can do it, you want to be able to move forward. So laying out this pattern is a helpful suggestion, but kind of. Having this technique as you go into it to be able to deal with um, those issues is going to be really, really, really double acting. It's really interesting stuff. Uh, so, you got your pattern laid out with the marker on your left. And now we're going to take it.
uh, oftentimes the apron, what it can do is really drain onto your shoe. So having an apron combo with rubber boots is really good, but the apron can be long enough that it also protects kind of the pants and that's where it drips. You're, you're aware of where it gets. You can pull up the sides of the apron to kind of make a little funnel so that it drips in a certain way. You can also stand the apron in a certain way so that it drips non right onto your shoe or the shoe or pants. Because of those does drip, drip onto your shoe because you're wearing rubber boots. The water that you're going to produce is going to be dusty. It's going to have a lot of dust in it. Some shops, people don't even wear a mask because the water potentially is going to keep the dust down. If the water is going to keep the dust down. It's not going to make the dust disappear. It's going to be dust on everything. We'll be in the So it's always a good idea to have that full face mask, not just a paper mask, but the real deal silicone cartridge deal, and it works. It'll work. It's tight on your face. You can just wear it all the time. And then you're done. So you're going to do a lot of cold working. When you're done, you're going to take your clothes off. You're going to leave those clothes in the shop. And then really, Usually I'll just use the lights that's like able to rotate in 
critical decision to use their life, but it's not going to also get in the way of your large class of care that you're going to use for energy policy. You've got your water feeding set up, so just, just to be just right. Um, you probably want more than less water, more than just a good distance. You want kind of a little, little tiny drink of water. Um, it can be, you can go minimal on the water so that you're not draining it on yourself, but uh, water is going to be a helpful lubricant and it's going to make things go smoother and it's going to look rougher, scratchier if it's not enough water. Uh, and so having, generally I've found just a little more water is better than having a little less water. So you've got your right amount of water set up. You've got your good lighting. You have your wheel mounted. Well mounted and pushed down onto um, the armor. And well mounted, get to the ground, very rigid, not bouncing around. Get the cast iron, old tiny, about day, way. Wow. 
can tell as you enter the wheel where it was and where you should be as you move forward with your cut. And because you just did one row of cut, you know how long through a rhythm you can be sitting on the spot. Not moving it, you just go, bringing that glass up to the wheel and touching right where you're supposed to touch it. You've got a sharpie marker. Now have one layer of pattern laid down. You have your rhythm and your knowledge of how long each of those little sounds should make, how much pressure you're applying, and how much sound is it making each time that you touch. And you want to do the same. You want this pattern to be uniform. You're going to have to do those, all of those movements the same. You're not going to take it very far away from the wheel when you cut it. You're just going to get just far enough away so you're not cutting it. If you can see it, you can see where that water spray is happening. That water spray is going to help you line up a little bit. There's too much water spray, you're going to turn it down a little bit. You want just enough to kind of see what's going on. So, um, water spray. And you can see here is where you might start to fudge things a little bit. If you're trying to make this pattern repeat this way, maybe you have a little less of a touch pressure. And, and not quite as deep. And then you might actually skip one of the Maybe you did them a little bigger and you just skip one in this row. And then the next row you're going to reduce even. Uh, and maybe you kind of fudge them over a little bit, you know. And this is where how much can you get away with? It's like visual looking at that. How much can you alter the pattern and still kind of stay within the realm of like it looks like the pattern at first. If you're familiar with this pattern, you've seen it, but you haven't really looked deeply at it, you might think that what you saw was really perfect. The next time you see this pattern on Look really closely at it. Count those dots. Look at the size of those dots. See if it's actually a perfect pattern. It might be that what was what they did, what the artist did, was such a good job of making it look so close to perfect that they could get away with not perfect. And that is, I think, where as a craftsperson you will find your space. Because if you are going for perfect, you're going to just you're going to drive yourself bonkers. It's never going to be perfect. You're dealing with glass. You're dealing with grinding glass with water as a crazy tool. It's really hard to do. And if you're trying to make it perfect, you're just going to spend too long. You got to get have another one to make. You have to figure out a way to make it look really good uh, without stressing yourself out, without making yourself scared, without hurting yourself. Because you see in itself, you need a lot of water. You're going to need a lot of water to make a difficult job. You pound that water, you get a lot of snacks. If you like meat, you can eat a lot of meat. 
to put you in the backpack and take you with you wherever you are. Wherever you are, you have But if you like vegetables, you can put those in the backpack or in the briefcase. Always a lot of it. Or you always have a lot of vegetables. Drink a lot of water. And work on relaxing the arms and thinking before. And don't hurt yourself. Don't stress yourself out. Nobody does it perfect. Even the pros pledge it. And then at the end, they just rub their hands. So, Into a lot of glass work. Americans, especially, really, really try to emulate old classic European styles and without really looking close at it, think of it as more perfect than it actually is. And then the American style becomes, there's kind of a great, like, American style then becomes more perfect. Are striving for perfection and get better and better. And when you look at another artist, an American artist, you think, well, that guy makes it, that person makes it so perfect. I have to make it even more perfect. I'm going to make my work super perfect. And it turns out if you look really close at some of the first, it's not all perfect. A lot of it has a little tricky things and weird things like that. It's not all perfect. It's okay for it to be perfect. And in some ways, as you embark on your journey in a making space, you'll find that it's better if it's not perfect. It's better if it's weird. It's better if it's supposed to be tricky and have some character to it. And finding where you want to put that character and where you want to engage that character, I think, is a better use of time than trying to make it perfect. Stressing your shoulder out, and stressing on your neck, and your hands fall asleep and so sleep because thinking over, hunched over, and overdoing it, terrible posture, stressed out, and all together, not a good control. Right? Just keeping your pack and lifting with your back instead of your legs. These are the things you need to think about. Maybe a way to do it. Then again, you're going to want to learn how to do it perfect so that you can figure out how to do it the way that you want. So, take it to work, figure out how to do it perfect. Uh, I think we've covered, like, the things I wanted to use for Kudo to walk us through the pattern. And in the same way, you can do these Kudo patterns. And if you can imagine those, then we can start thinking about the more complex crystal cutting for essentially drawing lines. Uh, another common technique with the Kudo and in Kudo, we don't even kind of draw them on the surface like making almost like a structure. Kind of do them in straight lines, you can do them in ridges, uh, you can do them in grooves, or you can do them in a structure. And that's where it gets, that definitely gets even more complex. The patterning is one thing, but you could then take that glass and draw it across that. And that's where you're also going to do the same thing with the layout and the lines that you're going to follow. And that would be, you'll need to both be 
able to draw that raft, the large piece of raft, across that wheel in a consistent, consistent manner and draw this straight line. But you'll also need to be applying even pressure the whole time. And you're listening to that sound. And you're not going to want to go, you're going to want to keep it really even and smooth. Um, and make sure that it's consistent because if you apply a different amount of pressure each time, if you apply a different amount of pressure as you're moving along, then um, the line that you're drawing will look. The whole time. That's where those long cuts become really good. Really long judo cuts. And I, the judo is just the judo is that the honeycomb pattern. So I'm not sure I'm making this. There's probably nothing to it for it, but like cutting a groove with a round wheel is also really hard. And it's just nice. And. So that's where again you get into the finesse with the wheel of being able to maybe even change your depth a little bit to make it finish or start right to make patterns line up. Why it moves or shrink the groove down. Go back into those those groups and make more cuts and follow along. And that's like another advanced level is being able to drop back into those grooves and look as if it's one consistent group. Because it's one thing to just cut in a straight line and make the nice consistent groove. But then it's a whole other thing to come back into that groove. Because sometimes you can only move your arms so much. Care of your body is really difficult in this process. Not overextending yourself. Making a long cut can make you bend your body and your wrists and your elbows and arms into positions that are not comfortable and not consistent with you. So, knowing that as you get into it, knowing how to hold your body to not let your wrists pull back, not let your hands pull back too far, but you're always kind of filled in, um, to really engage your core, and not keep it in with your back, um, but instead kind of engage your legs, keeping yourself very stable, 
going to be really hard. Really going to want to work. Well, they're going to want to overextend yourself. They don't want to work too hard. Figuring out how to do that, figuring out how to get in and out of those grooves, and how to come back to those grooves is also going to help. Really uh, patient with yourself. Uh, I mean, just like trying to practice and practice and practice on things that aren't your finished objects because they need the final object to really feel okay about it. Really tricky, and it makes a lot of noise. Thank you.